Welcome to Talking Underwater, One Water, One Podcast. I'm Jeremy Wolf, editor for the Endeavor Water Group. In this episode of Talking Underwater, I'll be interviewing Kelly Smalling, a research hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, about a major study from USGS on PFAS detection in water supplies. The new USGS study tested for 32 PFAS compounds across 716 locations. The study estimated that up to 45% of homes' tap water could contain one or more PFAS compounds. Without further ado, here's Kelly. This new study from USGS researchers has garnered a lot of public attention. Could you share what the study had done and why its findings are significant? Yeah, I sure can. So first of all, I want to give a little background. So um, most state and federal monitoring programs, they typically measure exposure to PFAS as well as other pollutants at the water treatment plant or in the surface water or groundwater wells that supply them. So what's really interesting about the USGS study is we specifically focused on collecting water directly from a homeowner's tap. And that's where exposure actually occurs. And that's where most public health agencies would really like this type of information. And what this study also did was it emphasized the importance of collecting data on PFAS from private wells. So private wells, they're not regulated by the EPA in the U.S., and they tend to be monitored at the discretion of the homeowner, which really means that it's the homeowner's responsibility to sample their own wells and understand their drinking water quality. And this information is really limited for private well users. And there's about 40 million people in the U.S. that are on private wells, which is about 13% of our population. So... What this USGS study was, is it was actually one of the most comprehensive studies of PFAS measured directly at the tap or where people are going to actually fill up their water glass. So what we did was in 2021, we used a network of volunteers to collect over 400 tap water samples in about six months across the US. We sent all of our volunteers a cooler, detailed instructions, And we actually got a really good rate of response. And so then we had all of those samples analyzed for about 32 individual PFAS. So ultimately our goal was four to eight locations in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the US Virgin Islands. We then combined that data with another about 300 samples or so that were collected previously at the tap by our research team. And how many locations total did you did the study collect tap water from for the effort? We included 716 locations in this study, which included 269 private wells and 447 taps on public supply. What types of PFAS were commonly found across locations? So the most frequently detected PFAS um, that were analyzed by all our different laboratories, they included PFBS, which was detected in about 16% of our samples, PFHXS, which was detected in about 15% of our samples, and PFOA, which was detected in 14% of our samples. And this is very similar to what has been reported by other folks in public supply samples. 
Now, what average concentrations of PFAS compounds did you find in the samples, and how do they compare to EPA's proposed maximum contaminant levels for the four major PFAS compounds? So the so we we report things as median. So the median concentration across all the PFAS detected was about three nanograms per liter, which is parts per trillion. Um, and then we also took all of the PFAS that were detected or observed in an individual sample and added them up and reported a total PFAS or some PFAS value. And for this, the median concentration was about seven nanograms per liter. Um, so regarding the proposed MCLs, so EPA has proposed maximum contaminant levels for PFOA and PFOS, and is actually also proposing to regulate a mixture of PFBS, PFNA, PFHXS, and Gen X chemicals using what they call a hazard index approach. So if folks want more information on these proposed regulations, feel free to take a look at EPA's website. It spells out exactly what the regulations are, um, what the timeline is, and how they calculated this hazard index. So the proposed MCL for PFOA of 4 nanograms per liter was exceeded in 6.7% of our samples, which equates to 48 taps out of the 716 that were sampled. Um, and for PFOS, it was exceeded in 4.2% of our samples, which was about 30 out of the 716. And for that combination of those four, that mixture, it was exceeded in 4.6% of our samples. How much did the presence of PFAS vary between locations? For example, uh, how did the occurrence of PFAS compare between public and private tap water or between rural and urban areas? Yeah, so surprisingly, exposure to PFAS was similar in samples collected from those unregulated private wells and the public supply. So we saw no difference in concentration or the number of PFAS detected between private wells and public supply. But uh, PFAS were actually more frequently observed in samples collected near urban areas, as well as areas um, with potential sources of PFAS like airports, industry, wastewater treatment plants, uh, military uh, installations. And the results of the study also indicated potential hotspots, which included areas in the Great Lakes, the Great Plains, um, the Eastern Seaboard, as well as Central and Southern California. The study had estimated a 25% probability of non-detect for major urban centers, and that seems very different from the estimated 75% probability for some rural areas. What contributes to these locations' odds? So I think this really has to do with the relationship between the PFAS concentration and urban areas. So the bottom line really is more people, more industry, more PFAS sources in urban areas, the higher the concentrations. And in rural areas, um, there's less sources, less people. So the probability of not detecting a PFAS is considerably higher. And then are you or USGS uh, currently conducting other research on PFAS? Yes, the USGS is conducting quite a bit of work on PFAS. Um, we've been doing work on PFAS for years. Um, we actually have a um, strategic vision that we released in 2022, which outlines 
how the USGS is going to tackle PFAS over the next two to, to 10 years. Um, and a lot of our work, again, is focused on that human exposure through drinking water, but we also have a variety of studies that are focused on fate and transport or how PFAS moves through the environment or how it breaks down. And we also have a ton of really great experts that are focused on ecological studies with an emphasis of how PFAS accumulates or is taken up in, in fish and wildlife and then what their potential effects are. Um, we're also working tirelessly to develop methods for PFAS in, in water, sediment, and other tissues. And lastly, for us personally, we've been doing tap water research, including PFAS, since 2016. So our research is going to continue, and it, and it will continue. Um, our emphasis is, is now on private well users and, and rural communities where information on PFAS and other pollutants is, is really limited. Where can interested listeners learn more about these latest findings? So they can, all of this, this information is available online. Um, they can take a look at our, our scientific paper. Um, if they're more visual and they kind of want to move around a dashboard, we have an interactive dashboard for the P, P, specifically for the PFAS study. Um, and also we have what we call our tap water geonarrative. So it's really our calling card for our tap water research. It gives a really high level overview of, of what we've been doing and where we've been collecting samples and, and what types of pollutants we focus on. And all of that information is available online. Perfect. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, you're so welcome. This has been great. On to housekeeping. For Waterworld, the latest edition of Waterworld magazine is now live. Check it out at waterworld.com magazine. Also, be sure to check out our video coverage of AWWA's ACE on our website at waterworld.com videos. We have more than 10 video interviews with industry experts filmed at the show that we're publishing regularly. For Wastewater Digest, the latest edition of Wastewater Digest is also available at wwdmag.com magazine. And check out the latest plant profile on Wastewater Digest. It includes a video interview and a photo gallery for the project behind the largest California clean water state revolving fund loan in history. For Stormwater Solutions, later this year we will be hosting StormCon in Dallas, Texas from August 29th through the 31st. Exclusive to this podcast is a 10% registration discount. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 and use the code ONEWATER10, all caps, to get 10% off your registration for the show. That is bit.ly slash stormconreg2023, and the code is O-N-E-W-A-T-E-R-1-0, all caps, for 10% off your registration. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Spotify. You can reach us at TalkingUnderWater at EndeavorB2B.com to share your thoughts. And of course, be sure to follow us on Twitter at TUWPodcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.